Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we love your word. And we love these words that we just sang. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she awaits the consummation of peace forevermore. And Father, that is what we are awaiting. Even as we look at our lives now and we do see so much strife and struggle and difficulty. But we are so happy and so hopeful that we can pray without being bashful. Maranatha, our Lord come. Make all things new, including us. So Lord, we ask you for your help as we study your word again this morning. Open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know that the Academy Awards will air tonight in prime time. And I don't know about you, but I have pretty much given up on these awards uh, for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is simply that the movies they choose are often just really bad and unwatchable. But there was once a time when they knew how to pick some winners. And back in 1994, the Academy awarded Best Picture to a film I think that actually deserved it, and you may remember what it was that year. It was a movie called Forrest Gump. Now, there are many reasons why Forrest Gump has proven to be so enduring over the years, and, but one of them centers on what is perhaps the central relationship in that entire movie. Forrest's love for this uh, childhood friend named Jenny, and in the movie, Forrest meets Jenny when they are still children. They, they he gets on the school bus when he's just starting school and he sees this girl and he loves her from the moment he sees her and then he loves her until the day she dies and beyond. But there's this problem because Forrest seems to have these limitations. It doesn't look like he's going to be able to enter into a normal relationship or that any girl will ever pay attention to him, much less the beautiful Jenny, they end up being friends, but he appears to be mentally handicapped. Or is he? In actuality, he's not so much mentally handicapped as he is an existentialist hero. It's not so much that he's dumb, but that he has no essence. And the entire movie is this series of larger-than-life moments where he is creating his essence. And it happens as a result of these virtuous and self-sacrificial decisions that he makes with his life. And so by the end of the movie, he's no longer this vacant essence. He's a football star. He's a war hero. He's a wildly successful entrepreneur. He's a man who never stopped loving Jenny, even though she has given herself in her life to drug addiction and to countless abusive men. He still loves her. It's not his birth who determines who he is. It's his deeds of love and heroism 
that define who he is. And so there's this one scene in the latter half of the movie where Jenny's life is sort of burned out and he has had all of these successes and she has come to stay at Forrest's family home to detox and to get her life back into order. And she's walking up these stairs and Forrest looks up at her. And you remember this scene? What he says to her? He says, will you marry me? He says, I'd make a good husband, Jenny. She says, you would, Forrest. He says, but you won't marry me. And then she kind of rolls her eyes like, you don't even know what you're talking about. And she says, you don't want to marry me. And he says, why don't you love me, Jenny? I'm not a smart man, but I do know what love is. You remember that part? (laughs) I'm not a smart man, but I do know what love is. And by this point in the movie, every single viewer knows that Forrest, he's not mentally handicapped. He's the only true man in the movie because he's the only one who knows how to love. And he knows what love is because it's proven in what love does. Do you remember the famous line he gets from his mom? Mama always said, stupid is as stupid does. That's one of the most important lines in the movie because that maxim is a maxim of virtue from his mother that he learned and it applies to love. Love is as love does. And Forrest does indeed know what love is because he does love. And Jenny finally figures this out. If there's any lesson that we would do well to learn, it is that love is what love does. Or to put it another way, Real love is going to be manifest in real deeds or it is no love at all. If there are no deeds behind a professed love, it's just sentimentality and emptiness. John says in 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us love not with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love, biblically defined, is not merely a state of mind, nor is it merely a set of feelings. I think it includes both of those things, but it's not merely those things. Real love always issues forth in deeds commensurate with love. And where those deeds are absent, you can be sure that love also is absent. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 14, he who has my commandments and keeps them He it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And you know what that means. It means that real love will always be manifest in real deeds. Or there's no love there. And so the question before us this morning as we begin this last passage in 1 Corinthians is do we know what love is? At Kenwood Baptist Church, do we know what love is? Are we known for loving with word only or are we known for loving with our deeds and with truth? You know, way back in May of 2017, that's when we started this series on 1 Corinthians. I I warned you then that 1 Corinthians was going to be getting into our business. Personally, it has for me. I think it has for our church in ways that are surprising and and good for us. We heard correction in chapters one through four about divisions in the church. 
We read of Paul's rebuke of the church's failure to practice church discipline in chapter 5. We heard Paul's admonitions about lawsuits and prostitutes in chapter 6. We listened to Paul talk about the nature of marriage and sex and singleness and divorce in chapter 7. We heard about laying aside our rights for the weaker brother and a warning against idolatry in chapters 8 through 10. We witnessed Paul's sober instructions about men and women in public worship and about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. And then we heard Paul's rebuke of loveless exercise of spiritual gifts in the community in chapters 12 through 14. And then we soared, at least I did, with Paul's exposition of the resurrection in in, in chapter 15. And now here, finally, in our third and last message on chapter 16, Paul is giving some final words to the Corinthian church, again, words that describe and prescribe a community marked by love. In fact, the key exhortation is the one we saw last time in verse 14, where Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. Indeed, the whole letter up until this point has been Paul trying to tell them how love fleshes out in all of their relationships within the church. And I think we're going to find again here that Paul is getting into our business. He's meddling with us. (laughs) Because this command to love is not only the touchstone for the final chapter in this book, it's the touchstone of our lives. It has to be if we are going to be followers of Jesus. In this chapter, Paul is given seven different expressions of love. We looked at the first four in the first two messages. And so this morning, we're going to look at the last three expressions of love. And they're going to be this, love for spiritual leadership, love for one another, and love for the Lord Jesus. So love for spiritual leadership, love for one another, and love for the Lord Jesus. So the first thing is this, love for spiritual leadership. Let everybody look at verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus, uh, that the household of Stephanus were the first con- converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. We actually don't know that much about Stephanus or his household. There's only one other mention of him in the whole book, and you may remember it was back in chapter 1. And in verse 16, where Paul says and th- that he baptized Stephanus and his entire household. So Paul baptized them. I think that probably implies that Stephanus and his household were converted as a result of Paul's initial ministry there. You remember in Acts chapter 18, where Paul came to Corinth and he preached the gospel for the first time. And they said all these, they got rejected by the Jews by and large, but all these Gentiles started coming in and responding to the gospel. It looks like Stephanus was a part of that in Paul's initial ministry there. He baptized not many people, but he baptized apparently the household of Stephanus. But we also find some other things, find out some other things about Stephanus' household right here at this last chapter, because it says that they were among the first converts in Achaia, which means they were, literally it says they were the first fruits. You remember where In chapter 15, it says that Christ was the first fruits from the dead. And we talked about the fact that that first fruits imagery is coming from the Old Testament. The idea that people were to bring the first fruits in as an offering to the Lord, but the first fruits were a guarantee of more to come. 
Jesus was the first fruits from among the dead, meaning there's more people to be raised from the dead afterward. Stephanus and his family are, the, are among the first fruits in Achia, meaning that there's more to come, converts to come. And if you read back in Acts chapter 18, that's surely what happened. Because it says in Acts 18 verse 8, many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So when you think of Stephanus, probably when Paul thought of Stephanus, he thought of this sweet experience of fruitful ministry in Corinth and how that ministry was proven in the manifest conversion of Stephanus and his household. Well, how was it manifest that they were converted? Well, look at verse 15. It's because they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. That's how you can tell. We might render that phrase, instead of service of the saints, we might say service to the saints or ministry to the saints. And so this ministry, what it was, was likely just that they were caring for the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ, needy brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, this uh, word for serving the saints is similar to what's in Romans 15, where it says that Paul was going to Jerusalem to serve the saints but he was bringing to them a contribution for the poor who were in Jerusalem. And it looks like that this is what Stephanus and his household were doing. They devoted themselves to serving God's people in this way. It means that Stephanus and his people were excelling in practical expressions of love for those who were in need. So they, Stephanus's household not only knew right doctrine, but they lived right doctrine. They didn't run around the church just loving in word only. They loved in deed and in truth. So when somebody in the congregation was hungry, Stephanus and his people were there with the food. When a family in the church was in financial trouble, Stephanus and his people were showing up on the doorstep with the funds in hand and the plan to help financially. Churches can sin and fail in all kinds of ways and not live up to what the Lord has called them to do, but that's not what was going on with Stephanus and his household in that church. They were Johnny on the spot with what, whatever provision was needed. They weren't just talking good deeds, they were doing the good deeds. It's good for us to remember what, what Jesus said about this, because Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus also said in Matthew 5 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Oh, how much this church needs members who not only know the right doctrine, but who also do the right doctrine. Jesus does not call you to look at hungry people in the church and then say to them, be warm and be filled. He calls you to look at your brothers and sisters and to warm them and to fill them. He doesn't call you merely to tell your grieving brother or sister just to say, cheer up. He calls you to sit with them and to weep with them and to pray with them and to strengthen them. In other, in other words, 
He wants you to do what verse 14 says. He wants everything to be done in love. Let everything be done in love. But love is not merely a feeling. It's a rock-ribbed commitment to do good to brothers and sisters and to care for them, to rejoice with them when they rejoice and to weep with them when they weep. And so what it means is that we are there for each other. That's the kind of commitment that Stephanus and his people were exemplifying to the people. They were the real deal. And so Paul is able to say to the congregation at Corinth what he says in verse 16. He says, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Now, that line is remarkable because Paul instructs the entire congregation to learn how to spot the kind of faithfulness that you see in Stephanus' household. And then he tells the congregation to submit themselves to that example. He doesn't actually say anything explicit about elder leadership here. But I do think that it's instructive for us that he commands submission to people like Stephanus. In verse 18, Paul says to give recognition to such people. So Paul requires the congregation both to recognize and to submit to people like Stephanus, people whom Paul calls fellow workers and laborers in the ministry. So even though Paul doesn't mention elders explicitly, I think it's very difficult to read this without seeing an implication for how a congregation, even a congregation like ours, is supposed to select and identify leadership. I think Paul is teaching us that it falls to the congregation to recognize those with exemplary doctrine and character and to submit to that leadership. Paul says in verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. And so here Paul is, is giving us this concrete example of Stephanus' devotion to meeting the needs of the saints. Because guess what? Paul's a saint. He's one of us. He's a believer. And Stephanus shows up to Paul in Ephesus and he gives a physical presentation of support to Paul. And you remember, Paul was under siege in Ephesus. We know from 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and verses 8 through 11 that Paul, things got so bad while Paul was in Asia, he on more than one occasion despaired of his life, thought he was going to die. He was in absolute misery and all of a sudden, Stephanus shows up from Corinth. And he's there to refresh his spirit, it says in verse 18. It says, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So it's likely that Stephanus shows up from Corinth. And you'll remember from chapter 7, the Corinthians had written a letter. So Stephanus probably has this letter in hand from the Corinthians. There's a lot of problems going on in Corinth. But Stephanus is there. To show, it shows up and he refreshes him. He is meeting their physical needs. I think he's doing what the Corinthians themselves are unable to do, but he, he has a personal presentation of, of help. But then he's also ministering to him spiritually. And so Paul, of course, is going to say, recognize and submit to people like this. This is the kind of love that he wants and that we should want the entire congregation to be known by. 
And when I was a junior year, when I was a junior in college, I became a part of this church that really changed my life in Shreveport, Louisiana. The preaching was deeply biblical and passionate, and the ministry was evangelistic and focused on discipleship. I was, I was completely in awe of the place and of, of the pastors who were there and had never been to a church like that before. And so I was just beside myself with joy when that summer after my junior year, they allowed me to come on staff as an intern at the church. And my whole job that summer after my junior year was just to, to help the minister of evangelism, a guy named Derek Cox. And I was just supposed to help him and do whatever he did. And so every week, I just followed him around like a puppy dog in whatever he was doing. And I watched and I learned. And from time to time, he would let me do some of the things that, that he was doing. And all of this was unfolding in an inner city type of a situation, which was and where we were, it was infested with gang violence. It was a big part of the situation there. But those were the people we were trying to reach because that's where our, our church was. That's where our, our, our neighborhood was. Every week we had opened up our gym. We had a church gym and the kids from the neighborhood would come in. It was for uh, junior high and high school age kids. And they'd come in and they'd play basketball. And then we'd sit them down for Bible study and we'd just try to evangelize them and, 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 and disciple any who would, who would respond. And so we just worked them week in and week out at Monday. And we called it Monday Night Club. And all these kids would come in. And it was a little dicey sometimes. We had, we had to have a metal detector at the door because at one point these two guys got in a fight and one of them pulled a gun on the other. And so <laughs> that changed everything. And so we had a metal detector before everybody came in from then on because we didn't know what was going to happen. But the, the whole thing was exhilarating in a lot of ways, but it was also a, a bit unnerving and I was green and sometimes a little ter terrified because we didn't just you know, invite folks into the church. We were going to them. And so my mentor, Derek, he was old school. He was, um, he was just going to these guys' homes and visiting them and trying to evangelize and disciple them. And so he would take me with him as he, he went to these homes. And I remember within the first week or so I was there, we went to a kid's house. And uh, his brother, his older brother, was out in the street when we got there. His name was Dirty Red. That's what they called him, Dirty Red. And I met this guy named Dirty Red. Within two weeks of when I met him, he was shot and killed right where we met him, in a drive-by. And I'll never forget going back to Dirty Red's house with Derek after he was killed. Derek wanted to minister to his mother and to his brother, you know, and... <laughs> We pulled up to the house, and there were all these guys who were obviously friends of Dirty Red, and they were just sitting out in front of the house on this car, and they looked fierce to me and angry. And um, I thought, oh, <laughs> we can't even get to the house without going past these guys. If there was anybody that was going to retaliate, I thought, it's those guys. And um, the last thing I wanted to do was to walk up to them and start talking to them, but there was no getting to the house without walking past them, but what does Derek do? <laughs> walks right up to him. He walks right up to him because he knows all of them. He knows a lot of them, at least. He knows them, and they're not, they're mainly sad, actually, sitting there. And when he talked to them and ministered to them, they received every bit of it. He put his arm around them. I'm worrying about getting shot, and Derek's worrying about how he can love these guys, which is what he does. 
So, so Derek took me to school that summer because we didn't sit around in his office and talk about doctrine all day. We were on the street doing it all day. This whole thing is about Derek. For, for me, Derek was the kind of person that, that God calls us to recognize and to submit to. The kind of people who love God and love God's people so much that it's just spilling out all over the place. If you can just get around them, it's, just, it's going to spill out on, on you. We're called to recognize those kinds of people and to, to submit to them. These are the kind of people that God is calling each and every one of us actually to be. That's what we're called to be for, for one another in here. The kind of love and good deeds that risks for each other and that lays down our lives for each other. That's the kind of people we're supposed to be. We love not in word only, but in deed and in truth. It's not a theory for us. It's, it's a way of life for us. It should be. None of us are perfect at this, but you know what that means? It means we're going to have to be growing in this and figuring out how to do it better when we fail. That's all of us, from pastors down to the smallest child. We're all going to have to be growing in this. And we're all going to have to learn to admire this and recognize that kind of leadership and submit to it. That's what Paul says. So there's a love for spiritual leadership, but look at the second thing. These second points are, are going to be shorter. Second point is love for one another. Everybody look at verse 19. Paul says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, that's Aquila and Priscilla, you remember them from elsewhere, Acts, for instance. Aquila and Prisca, together with the Lord in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Now, remember again that Paul is writing to them from Ephesus, which is in the western part of Asia Minor, and it's, so it's across the sea from where the Corinthians are. He's been ministering there in Ephesus amidst all this opposition and persecution. And as he closes this letter, he does what's customary and expected at the end of a letter in the first century. He's sending greetings. Greetings from um, these churches, from these individual believers. But these are not throwaway lines at the end. Because he's greeting them. He's sending greetings on behalf of the church that's in Asia from the fellow workers, Aquila and Priscilla, who are there in Asia, and from the church that meets in Aquila and Priscilla's house. In other words, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they are a part of a larger fellowship of Jesus' disciples who are fighting the very same fight that they are and who are contending for the very same faith that they are. They believe in the same Christ that the Corinthians do, and they hold fast to the same doctrine that the Corinthians do. In other words, there is solidarity and common identity with these other churches. And all of that is invoked here when Paul's greeting from these churches. And so the Corinthians needed to hear this because they had, I believe, in so many ways, drifted into behaving as they were independent actors. All this misbehavior that we saw over the course of this book is in large part, especially the division, I think was a result of the Corinthian church looking like and thinking that they believe themselves to be independent actors. You remember what Paul reminds them of in, in chapter 14 and verse 33 about the way things are in all the churches? And then in chapter 14, verse 36, he says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or 
Or are you the only ones that it has reached? Meaning, are you the only Christians in the world and you're just, you know, keeping your own counsel here and the way things are done in Corinth is the way things are? No, no, the word of God didn't come from you or originate with you or end with you. It is in all of the churches. There is a common faith and practice. And so Paul has used this to remind them of what their obligations are. The word of God is not the exclusive domain of any one church. The word of God did not originate in Corinth, nor was it the only place that it came to. The word of God is abroad in the churches, and the churches are hearing their Savior's voice. And the Corinthians need to pay attention to how the Spirit of God is moving and working in all the churches. And if all the churches are hearing from the Spirit one thing, but the Corinthians or some other single church is doing another thing, that's a good indication that 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 church is the one that's aberrant, not the, the consensus, not everyone else. One commentator put it this way said, the more the Corinthian church came to understand themselves, not as free agents or as independent contractors, but as a part of a larger church, a larger community of followers of Christ, committed to the same faith and the same fundamental values, and to living them out in love and with grace, the better it would be for them. And so Paul says in verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. And then he says this, and this is the clincher in verse 20. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. In Paul's day, kissing was a pretty ordinary form of of greeting. It was an expression of affection that was typically used among relatives and rulers and other loved ones that a person might have in their life. So it wasn't a benign expression. It was an expression of endearment. It was an expression of affection. It communicated, in other words, love or loyalty. Paul says that they were to greet one another with a holy kiss, meaning that the kiss was supposed to be given in a way that was um, void of all bad motives. Um, It's possible to kiss people in an unholy way, isn't it? You kiss somebody in a sexually transgressive way, that would be wrong. But you have, you have kisses like Judas's kiss. They're betray, betraying kisses. And Paul is just saying, no, these, this, I want you to greet one another with a holy kiss. It's, 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 it's sinless. Okay, It's the kind of kiss that's expressing pure love and devotion and affection. So some people have wondered if this commandment means that all Christians everywhere should be kissing each other. I know that's what you're all probably wondering now. Where are we going with this? Uh, I think the answer to that question is no. I think, I think the command, if you, know, if you look carefully, it's not, the accent's actually not on the kissing. The, ca- the accent's on the greeting. In fact, the, the imperative is the greeting. Greet one another. In Paul's context, this was a common way that, and a culturally acceptable way that this happened. But the, the command is really upon this warm, filial greeting to brothers and sisters in Christ. In our day, maybe that's a, holy side hug. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it needs to be a warm and an affectionate greeting that we are able to communicate to each other and it to be a regular thing, no matter how tactile it might end up being. I know this is a simple command, but think about how this would have landed on the Corinthians. Because the Corinthians, we've already learned, were riven by factions. They were already divided from one another because they, they, they were 
you remember some of them, they were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. I mean, they had, they had their factions going. Some of them would thought they were super spiritual. They were so spiritual, they could trample on the consciences of other people in the congregation. They had their problems. And Paul is saying to them, look, you've got to be able to greet one another with a holy kiss, with this physical expression of love and affection. So think about this. Think about somebody, a time that you've been really mad at someone. You've been really mad at somebody, really angry, maybe over a sustained period of time. You feel like a big hug then? How does it make you feel? It doesn't occur to you to give physical expressions of affection to people that you're angry with or people that you're estranged from. When Paul is commanding this kind of affection, he's commanding them not to be estranged from other, one another. People complain about our nation being bitterly divided right now politically. Truth is, we've been bitterly divided before in our nation. How many of you remember the election of 2000 between Bush and Gore? You remember that? You remember what made it divisive? It all came down to Florida in that election. And there was all this mess of a recount in Florida. And on election day, we didn't know who won. We went through the night. They declared Gore the winner. Then they declared Bush the winner. Then they declared Gore the winner. And then they all gave up. And we all went to bed at 3 a.m. And we didn't know who the president was going to be. And then we had a fight in public for weeks in the courts about who the next president was going to be. It was one of the most politically acrimonious times I've ever seen in our country. So that when a month later, it finally all came to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, it's Bush. <laughs> uh, essentially, they said, Florida's going, the, the recount is ending and, and the election goes to Bush. So as a result of this, when he came into office, I don't know if you remember this, there, there, it seemed like half the country didn't recognize his presidency as legitimate. They thought it was a stolen thing. It was bitterly, bitterly, bitterly contested. And you had all through that early term people saying he's illegitimate. Until what day? September 11th, 2001. Months into his presidency, we all got attacked the homeland for the first time since Pearl Harbor, and we all watched planes slam into those buildings, and God help us, some of us saw our countrymen jumping out of those buildings, and everybody started to feel a little differently in the country, a whole lot differently in the country. On September 16th, the country went to church even. But one part of this period that stood out to me was how all the stuff that seemed to be important to people on September 10th was not important to people after September 11th. And the acrimony that was there on September 10th just seemed to disintegrate. And it even happened at the level of our highest political office holders. And there was a joint session of con uh, President Bush called a joint section, a special joint session of Congress to address the nation. And he gives this, it was a wonderful speech Every, every, you know, the whole nation was watching this. But the thing that stuck out to me was at the end of the speech, he comes down off of the platform and he meets the Senate Majority Leader, Tom Daschle, at the floor. 
He's from the opposite political party. He was, he's from the party that he was at bitter odds with. And these, President Bush comes down, and these two men stand in front of each other, and they just give each other this enormous bear hug on the floor of the House of the Representatives in front of the entire nation. It was an expression of unity, and I think it was genuine affection that no one could have even fathomed just a month before that between those two men. And yet there it was. But it took those buildings coming down to remind them of their mutual interest in and love for the nation and in its security and of their common purpose towards that end, whatever else their differences were. I bring that up because I'm wondering if if anybody here this morning has a person in their life that they cannot even fathom putting their arm around in a holy expression of love and affection. Maybe there's been an unresolved conflict, perhaps a personality clash. Maybe an offense has occurred that one party knows about and the other doesn't. It's just never been rectified. And bitterness has just kept that wound open and tender, and you aren't willing to touch it anymore. You just stay away from it, which means you stay away from that person. So rather than dealing with that person and the problem, you avoid that person. You try to be where they aren't going to be. You really don't want to have anything to do with them at all, much less express love and affection for them. Is there anybody here this morning nursing those kinds of feelings towards a brother or sister in Christ in the church? If that is you, what would it take to make what seems unfathomable fathomable to you? What would it take to make all that stuff that makes you feel justified in your feelings, perhaps of contempt, what would it take to take all of those feelings away? A tragedy, planes flying into buildings, maybe a savior dying on a cross. Hasn't the biggest thing already happened? Isn't it the case that the biggest thing that God could have done to reconcile us to himself and to each other has already happened? If God has already shown his love for us in a way to kindle our love for him and for each other, then where is that love? Where are the grounds for bitterness or contempt just festering among us? We, we don't have grounds for that, really. What would it make so that the bonds of peace and affection might reign in your heart and in this congregation? In other words, you've, you've got to be able to obey what Paul's saying here. He's, he's saying it. It's not a throwaway line. Greet one another with a holy kiss. These people were fighting. That means they've got to work it out. <laughs> if it's going to be a holy kiss and not a fake one, They have to work it out. And they're going to have to figure out how to get to the bottom of this. And that's what we're going to have to do. We have to have a love and affection for each other that's real. Last thing, I promise briefly. Love for spiritual leadership. Love for one another. Love for the Lord Jesus. Verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This was how Paul would say... This is really what I mean. 
you know, it, Paul says, I write this greeting with my own hand. That's implying that somebody else probably put pen to paper for the rest of the letter, which is, we know this about Paul. He's often using a scribe or some sort of an amanuensis to help us write his letters. But then Paul would come in at the end and he would say, I write this greeting with my own hand, meaning I'm the apostle Paul. I approve this message. This is, this is what I intended. Okay. This is what, what this person wrote is what I intended. You need to listen to this. I'm authenticating this. And then Paul says this, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Paul has just raised the stakes on love in a way that you can't raise them any higher. It means that if anyone fails to love the Lord Jesus, then that person must be damned. This is profound because Paul is saying that heaven and hell are at stake in your ability to know what love is. If you come to love the Lord Jesus as your crucified and risen Savior, then you will be blessed if you fail to love the Lord Jesus as your crucified and risen Savior. You will be cursed. And it's just that simple. And then he adds this exclamation point. It's, it's a little Aramaic expression. Maranatha. It means our Lord come. If anybody fails to love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. What does that mean? He's just added the most kind of urgency that you can add to saying something like that. If you, if you get found at the end and you're not loving the Lord Jesus, you're damned. Our Lord come. Come quickly, Lord. Sort it out. Which means if you are failing to love the Lord Jesus and you are failing to, lo to love the Lord to, to love each other, you better get it sorted out quick. Don't wait. Don't sit on this. Figure it out. Recon be reconciled to God, which means you've got to know the Son, love the Son, kiss the Son, Psalm 2 says. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Isn't it very interesting that at the very end of this letter, Paul's modeling what he commands them to do. He's had a stormy, and I believe at this point in many ways, an unresolved relationship with the Corinthians. Remember, some of them are saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, which means I'm not of you, Paul. I like these guys. You can take a hike. Would you please send us Apollos? And yet Paul says, not only the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, but he finishes with my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. He reminds them that he loves them. He's doing the very thing he's calling them to do. And it's what God is calling all of us to do as well, to love one another. Let me say this. If you're here this morning and you don't love the Lord Jesus. That means you don't know the Lord Jesus. The Bible teaches that we're sinners. We've all blown it. We deserve judgment from God. He would by right, he, he would be totally well within his rights and nobody could complain if he just judged all of us because of our sin. But the Bible says that's not where he left things. 
The Bible says that God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to save the world. Not to condemn the world, but to save it. You can't earn your good standing with God. The only way that you can be reconciled to God is to trust in the one that he sent. Because he took a punishment upon himself that we deserved. He stood in our place. He died on a cross. And then God raised him from the dead. And he's alive right now, seated at the right hand of God. And the Bible says, if you just believe in him, turn from your sin and believe in him, you will be saved. You say, well, I don't, you don't know what my sins are. I don't. God does. He knows what your sins are. And he came to save sinners. Are you a sinner? The time is very short. You need to repent and to believe in this gospel. And you need to do it now. Father, I pray that you would save and sanctify through this word. Conform your people into your image. Convict sinners of their sin and of their need for a Savior. And Father, I pray that you would be lifted up and that you would draw people to yourself. Do this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.